You know, I used to be told that I do everything. I do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that. Doing many, many things. I've often been told that I burn my candles at both ends, which a lot of times it does feel like it. But compared to our guest that we have today, I feel like I am making very, very small moves. I have to say today's guest wears many hats. She does many things. And her approach to the pandemic and utilizing her platform in order to advocate for Indigenous women and Indigenous people and overall health and wellness has been amazing to see and also been an absolute honor and privilege to be a part of. Today's guest will talk to us about the different approaches and her goals and initiatives in order to take and face these struggles and obstacles that our native people are facing today. Uh, Her outlook is absolutely amazing and the positivity, encouragement and support and love is all there. And uh, you got to listen to today's episode all the way through. I'm telling you, it's going to be a good one. Let's go. Hi, I'm Cola Shippentower and this is the Enough is Enough podcast, the show where we talk about everything and anything from politics to relationships, from fitness to sex and everything in between. We talk with individuals who have said enough is enough and are ready to speak what's on their hearts. Something that's been really amazing for me in a lot of the work that I do and partnering up with different organizations, whether it be through Enough is Enough or even on my own personal journey with MMA and jujitsu or advocacy through MMIW, has been able to meet incredible individuals from all over the country and sometimes even all over the world, but being able to sit down and have a conversation that's completely open and unscripted, raw and unfiltered is probably my absolute fave. Before I get any more into this, I'm going to go ahead and bring on our guest today, which is Jordan Daniel. If you could just give us a really quick introduction and thank you so much for being here today. Leila Palamayaye, thank you so much for having me. Hi everyone, my name is Jordan Marie Brings to White Horses Daniel. I am Kuichasha Lakota, a citizen of Kuichasha Oyate, the Lower Brule Indian Reservation in Central South Dakota, and I currently live on occupied Tongva lands, which is also known as Los Angeles, California. That's a mouthful. That's a lot. Yep. <laughs> you, you just threw it all right in there so naturally it's yep. almost like you've done this before <laughs> yeah yeah it gets to the point where it's like I know I know what to expect now and don't feel as nervous anymore for podcasts <laughs> that's good that's awesome that's perfect so I think we should just get to like the knit and grit of it because I know once people see Jordan Daniel they're going to know exactly who we're talking to and what we'll probably be talking about but And it's really hard because I get this a lot too. People will be like, well, your identifier is a fighter or a Mm jujitsu, that sort of stuff. And I'm very much like, well, I'm also a mom. So I have other things that I really do. But in all honesty, we all have this one thing that we probably really got bumped up with. And so some people might might already know what that that was for you. So for those that don't know, what what would one see you for? Um, I would say more recently, it would be Jordan Rising Hearts, a community organizer. But prior to that, really my whole life has, my identity has been Jordan the runner, Jordan the athlete, um, native representation, running D1 college, running professionally. And so that's really been my identity. And now it's become a platform where I'm intersecting both of my passions of advocacy and running. Absolutely. And what do you feel like has been probably one of the biggest moments for you up to this point, um, being able to tie those two together, the running and your advocacy? Yeah, I've, I've 
been on prayer runs before, been part of prayer vigils for, you know, our missing and murdered Indigenous relatives and, you know, prayer runs for protecting lands, protecting Bears Ears, protecting Oak Flat and sacred sites. Um, but it changed when I decided, and I always kept prayer running um, and advocacy separate from my competitive platform of running because just being a competitive runner, you have your routine, you have your training, you have, you know, you're, you're kind of rigid with the routine. Um, and I just never thought, like, thought to try and bring advocacy into that sports part aspect of it. But it got to a point in 2018, I ran the San Diego Half Marathon and wanted to dedicate my bib number instead of having my name on it to the hashtag MMIW, hoping that this would spark conversations. This is also part of my journey of learning more about this epidemic and issue and who the advocates and the families are and trying to fundraise. Um, and, you know, I was really disappointed. Some people did ask, like, what does that hashtag mean? And then, you know, it led to them, like, following Rising Hearts and led to them, like, clicking on the hashtag to, like, become more informed and learning what this issue is about. Um, but it didn't have the impact that I was hoping for for non-Indigenous people because I feel like day in and day out, this is something that has indirectly or directly impacted us, whether we've lost a loved one, we know someone who's lost a loved one, um, and it's very prevalent in our communities. And so a year later, I tried the same thing again at the same race again and got a few more people to ask me what that means. Um, but it was just to a point where I felt like no matter how many times you know I'm organizing with other Indigenous people to organize a panel with incredible voices that can speak to this issue, highlighting the families, um, providing pamphlets for people to take home with them, actionable items. I felt like no one cared. I felt like the only ones who care are our own people. And seeing this work being done a majority by the families themselves when they shouldn't have to be doing this and not getting the support that they need. I was just becoming really um, disappointed in like society, like feeling let down of like, okay, here it is again, like no one cares about indigenous people. And so the Boston Marathon was a month and a half later. And that was just an opportunity for me to be intentional with my running and for the first time, give up that, you know, selfishness within the sport of wanting to perform. It's the Boston Marathon. It's the second time I've run it. It's my favorite course. I love the atmosphere. I love competing there. But it was where I decided it's not about me anymore and it's about being intentional and giving back to our relatives through prayer to say their name out loud, to offer prayers for their families and to not worry about outside society, outside of indigenous communities because I felt let down. And um, it just felt like after missing persons flyer, after missing persons flyer or being invited to these MMIW, MMIR groups, just feeling like we are not getting the support and visibility we need and just feeling frustrated. And with one post just a couple days after that run, everything changed. It felt like people had no idea um, that they didn't know that institutionalized racism exists, that indigenous people are really actually experiencing these traumas and these perpetual cycles of violence happening every single day in our communities and that we are targets and are vulnerable to these situations and um, you know it, it it increased the awareness which I think is really great it's been very overwhelming it feels like a very big responsibility that it's put me on this path but it's led to so many 
um, new friends, new allies, new co-conspirators to be part of this movement to hopefully build up enough people that can start, you know, showing up, doing the work and lifting some of the burden so that it's not always placed on the advocates and the families, especially. Um, but yeah, that was the first time where that intersection happened. And it was kind of like, why haven't I done this before? Because um, this is both of what I love, advocacy and running. Um, and now it's just given my running and my life new purpose and something that I'm really excited to be continuing and still learning and healing on at the same time. Wow. I mean, there's so much and just what you said right there. I'm like trying to prepare myself. I remember to hit <laughs> all these points. So uh, for any of our listeners that don't know, MMIW or MMIWP and MMIR is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women or People or Relatives. So it's a huge epidemic that's sweeping across Indian country. And a lot of us advocates are trying to raise so much awareness about this issue that we're facing even today. And um, but having this ability to be able to connect as a as a professional athlete, it's so refreshing to hear because sometimes in these journeys when we're into our training and really working really hard with advocacy, we have this tendency to really split them. So to hear another athlete say you found a way to connect them really inspires me to start thinking more along the lines. You know, a lot of people in Indian country started seeing the picture from my last competition where I was wearing a shirt with a, a beaded medallion of a girl with a red handprint on her face. And I'm like, this is probably what I should be doing with this. And it kind of sparked exactly what you're doing is tying the two together. So that's really inspirational for someone like me to probably continue to do it in that sort of way. So I know when I believe I saw the picture from the Boston Marathon, I'm not a runner. I don't do that. <laughs> you tell me to do burpees for 45 minutes. I'd be glad to do that. But you tell me to run for 45 minutes. I'm kind of like, oh, you're crazy. My husband was teasing me because last month we had the um, Ahmed Arbery run. And then yep. your 5K, your virtual 5K and your, your marathons that you had going, your virtual events. And here I am just registering for these and getting all this stuff ready. He's like, what are you doing, girl? You don't run. I'm like, you're right, but I'm doing this. And so, um, but what does um, training look for you right now, look like right now? Yeah, so a lot of, as hard as this last year has been, a lot of good has come out of it in terms of, you know, my advocacy has led me to becoming actually sponsored and having that title of professional. It's something that I've been striving for for so long. It's something that I've been supported by previously with New Balance and having a New Balance coach, but wasn't like official, more amateur. And now I'm, you know, with Ultra, I'm with Rabbit, I'm with Ultimate Direction, and they're really supporting a lot of all of all of the initiatives that I've done and all the things that I propose to help improve their diversity, equity, and inclusion components to within their infrastructures. Um, but now I finally have signed and found um, a coach, two coaches actually, and we're in week two of my new training cycle. And so right now it's kind of very minimal of, you know, um, you know, averaging like 50, 60 miles a week right now, um, doing hill repeats, doing kind of like fast paced intervals, um, easy runs, uh, bike ride, which I have to do today of 20 miles to kind of um, support my cross training. Um, I also am recovering from an Achilles plantar fasciitis injury. 
that's literally been here since my prayer run. So almost two years that I have not been able to get rid of it. So it's been to the point where it's manageable and I could still run, but it's very annoying to have to run through. Um, so we're doing a lot of like strength-based training. Um, long distance runners tend to neglect strength-based. Uh, it's something that I used to do a lot in college. Um, but because I don't have access to a gym and all of those facilities and coaches, it's definitely something I've neglected. So um, this injury is probably a result of that and being irresponsible with it, but it's a lot of fun. I actually really, really like it. And I'm also trying to learn other forms of movement by the program that I started indigenous wellness through movement to try and get me to learn that running isn't everything, but that yoga and other forms of movement can support my running that way. And especially now that running is much more heavier for me, um, running is no longer that escape for me, that um, relaxation and kind of breath of fresh air that it used to give me because now every run has a deeper meaning to it, not just a workout, not just a long run or hill repeats, like no matter what I'm doing in my run, I'm always thinking about what else can I be doing I need to respond to this email with this partner org or this family that has reached out to me. Um, you know, my mind is constantly on how else can I be showing up and supporting? Um, and so I have to find other ways to get that relaxation and that calm and to also practice self healing. Um, and so I'm really excited to be learning all different kinds of movement through that program. That's really awesome. I'm glad you brought that up because have you taken the Enneagram test? No, no. Okay. I've heard of so, it. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. So I've been meaning to take another test. So you, there's this challenge of taking your own Enneagram test to see where you're at on the spectrum of all these different um, types, but then also having somebody close to you take the test for you. So answer the questions for you, because we, we often will be really humble about some of the answers we give ourselves and we won't go to the extreme where we probably should or how other people um, probably see us. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Enneagram three with a wing two, which means I'm the achiever with the helpful wing. So I like to help others, but I like to go above and beyond. And often you find this in a lot of athletes is we will do everything 110% and whatever it is that we're passionate about, like the, the core of what we do. So MMA, I was in the gym, either rolling, sparring, boxing, doing all that hardcore stuff and not realizing that I need to take other uh, cross training into consideration, whether it be strength training or be running and other cardio, and then even toning it down in yoga. So I think it's really super important for anyone else that's really active. And just, I think society in general, we're all always thinking about the next thing. What do we have to do that checklist? What's going on? And uh, talking about living more presently in the moment that we're in is absolutely beautiful. And I think a lot of times we forget that when we are so focused on what we think the end goal is. Yeah. So walk us through what it's like before a marathon. Like, what are you eating? What are you listening to? Do you have like a, a really good ritual you've got down for years that you've been going through? Or is it just kind of put your shoes on and go? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of that. It's Specifically training for a marathon, usually a training cycle is, depends on the person, but um, usually mine have been like six months training cycles. And you start off, um, you know, with a strong, good base of long mileage and you integrate long endurance runs to push your endurance, to push your pace, to go that distance. Sometimes that means doing two a days where you run in the morning and you run in the evening and you're doing a lot of doubling to add that mileage. 
Um, and I would say probably the most important workout every week would always be the long run um, to get your body used to that time and duration. But yeah, it looks like repeat miles. It's hill repeats. It's long, like six to 10 mile tempos or lactic threshold tempos and a lot of, you know, core. Core is absolutely important. Uh, making sure that your form is, you know, supporting your movement. Because if you have a weak top half of your body, that's going to totally mess with your hips, your gait, how your feet are landing on the ground, which could potentially lead to injuries. And if you're not taking the proper precautions of doing prehab stuff, like a lot of stretching, a lot of doing your due diligence of making sure that your body is okay and can handle it. Um, but yeah, it's also incorporates lots of eating and telling yourself it's okay to eat and give in to when you're hungry. And my coach um, prior who is from New Balance told me, he's like, whenever you're feeling hungry, go eat something. Don't be like, oh, I'm just going to wait till dinner time. He's like, your body is burning all of these calories. You're going to increase your, your appetite. And he's like, just go for it. And don't feel guilty if you want to have Pop-Tarts. Don't feel guilty if you want to have a cupcake. Like, eat what your body is craving because that's what it needs. Your body instinctively knows what it needs. And definitely the one thing that I crave the most after only long runs and on workout days, which are total three days of the week, I crave a Coke. That's like the <laughs> one thing I have to have after a run, Just especially a long run. <laughs> yep, keeping it sacred. Got to get that pop. And uh, my mom used to be so get so annoyed with me, especially in college, because <laughs> I would like go out, do a workout, hill repeats, come back. And then I would like open up a can of one of her Cokes and I would just like only drink until I was satisfied. And then I just put it back and she would just get so mad at me. She's like, Jordan, you're making them go all flat and I'm having to buy like Coke every <laughs> single day now. And she's just like, if you then she ended up getting me bottles so I could actually like close the lid and then like use it again if I needed it. But that's definitely one of the things that I crave the most is because like obviously my sugar intake is like depleted. Um, salt intake is depleted and Coke is just the life-saving drink over water. <laughs> it's so funny that you bring up Coke or soda in general. Um, so I've developed a few things over the years with my MMA training. I have five documented concussions. That doesn't even count the ones that are undocumented that were pretty much self-diagnosed and I just knew and didn't want to go to the hospital. So over time, I've accrued these these kind of, I, I don't want to call them ticks because it's not like Tourette's, but um, I struggle with uh, simple math now. You give me an algebraic equation, I can solve that for you. But if you're telling me like 36 plus 25, I have to write it down. I second guess if I have it right. So simple math is really hard. And then when I'm very, very fatigued or tired, I have a stutter now. So those are things that have developed over time. But what I've noticed in this hit probably about year six into my career, which was when I'm going through a fight camp, which your camps are much longer for fighters, we're about six weeks. We're consistently training throughout the year, but when we're in actual fight camp and prep mode, it's six weeks. But that's when my stress levels kind of go up a little bit and I'm starting to really get on my diet and really watching what I'm eating. And then we hit the very last week, which is weight cut. So what we found out is I have a tendency to sleepwalk when I'm in my, my last fight week and cutting weight. And I remember this time specifically, we were in between moving to a different house. So my parents have always kept my bedroom at their house and I'm staying there. <laughs> and my mom has this horrible tendency 
of when I'm in the middle of something really hardcore with training is she loves to bake. I'm like, girl, you're going to bake now. You're going to bake that cake now. That seems perfect. And it's just insane to me that she picks this time, but she had baked a full blown cake, huge cake, no special occasion. Just wanted to bake a cake and frost it and put it out on the counter that night. My dad had also bought pizza for my boys. That's what they had for dinner. And he had bought a two liter of Fanta and left that on the counter as well. <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night. I had opened that two liter of orange soda and was chugging it. And I woke up and almost waterboarded myself with the soda. And I'm like, what am I doing? And I realized, oh, I slept walk, close everything up, try to act like nothing happened, go back to bed. But I'm still stressing, obviously, because I'm cutting this weight and had been working really hard all week. And even thinking when I'm trying to fall back asleep, I probably just put on like another half pound doing that. Oh no. And so I fall back asleep and I wake up again and I'm in the kitchen, but this time I have a fork and I dug, didn't take a piece of the cake. I'm digging it right into the middle of the cake. Like oh, just no. no shame. Like here, <laughs> here comes the bite. So it's really interesting. Um, when we think about our diets and just kind of the different things that we accrue over time with this these careers and sports and whatnot. Um, but something I really admire, especially with your social media, is that you keep this level of honesty and transparency with your followers. And you have this really good way of making very unfortunate situations to into really good lessons for other people. And so something I found really interesting that you had posted on one of your stories was talking about um, eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what are your experiences with any sort of eating disorder and with your career? Yeah, I mean, that's how it all began was with running and that whole concept of, oh, if I'm just a little bit, you know, lighter, I'll be able to run faster. And so it's great that you bring this up too. It is uh, National Eating Disorder Awareness Week um, right now. And for anyone that is listening that is struggling, please go to NEDA.org. They have tons of resources and support lines for you to contact. Um, but know that you are not alone. Um, it's been 13, 15 years that I've been struggling with this still. And most recently a relapse that I'm going into month three of, of being strong as I can. Um, but yeah, it began in high school, my senior year, that goal of I'm just going to lose one or two pounds because I was competing in the 800, the mile, the 200, the two mile and the four by eight. And I was just like, I just want to lose two pounds. That's like it. But I wanted to do it the right way. I changed my diet being taking out like candies, sodas, being really strict, increasing my mileage, but simultaneously at the same time. I was in a really toxic um, relationship and that person just started who was struggling, um, had his own traumas, things that I wasn't aware about, not until years later of what was happening and what he was going through. He was also a freshman in college and I was a senior in high school, um, but it just led to comments, you know, poking and prodding at my body and just not any supportive kind of language to, towards me. Um, and so then dealing with that and what I was going through in that relationship, you know, kind of just braided itself with my running. And because I felt like I had no control in this relationship, running was the thing that I could control. I could control what I was running, how far I was running, how I felt, what I wanted to eat. And then it just got too big to handle and it just got out of control. And so 
I was living with that secret for all of my senior year, going into freshman year of college, which I was recruited to run in um, the D1 program. Um, but it wasn't until sophomore year where it got to the point where I was so exhausted in the workouts. Um, my coach was like, something's not right. And he's like, you're going to take the day off. You're going to go to, to the doctors. You're going to tell them what's going on. You, you're going to ask to get your labs checked. And so a couple days later, my, the doctor calls me and tells me to come into the field house. Let's have a meeting. He's like, first off, I just want to say like, how are you alive right now? Because your levels are all shockingly so low, like my potassium level, my, um, my ferritin levels, like I'm really anemic too at the same time. And so he's just like, I don't understand how you've been continuously pushing yourself with this mileage, the workouts, the competing, um, and how you haven't given yourself a heart attack. Um, and so that was really eye-opening to me and had me confront this secret that I was carrying and got me to admit it and say it out loud, not just in front of him, but to my coach who was really supportive um, and to my partner at the time. And so he was like, you're gonna take the next couple of months to just focus on yourself and get back into running why you love running. And you're gonna work with a nutritionist, you're gonna work on a healthy eating plan and hopefully work on that relationship and connection that you have with your food pathways and understanding that if you wanna be putting this amount of energy out, you need to be putting that same amount of energy back into you. Um, so it was definitely a struggle, but once I got it, once I felt like I had that healthy control back of understanding, my running can my, my running changed. Like I was exceeding all of the goals and dropping times, making teams, um, you know, qualifying for the bigger national meets, and just everything changed. And so all the rest of college. Um, went really well, was really exciting to be part of. Um, but then like DC, moved there a few years later, had a relapse, was also in a really toxic, um, abusive relationship. And as I've gotten older, I've noticed I relapse when I feel like things are getting too much, when things become very overwhelming and things become very stressful and emotional while simultaneously trying to also work on your own healing and trauma. Um, I've been working with a therapist for over a year now, I'm an indigenous therapist, which I feel like makes all the difference in the world. Um, and so understanding all of that and like kind of what fuels these relapse to potentially happen, like I'm becoming more aware of what I need to be alert to. Um, granted, I feel like I definitely failed this time. Um, but I, I didn't stay in that darkness and in that secret for too long, um, because I have a great partner now and we live together and we have cute little fur babies and he just provides such a really safe environment that after a few months of living with this on my own, I decided to have the courage to tell him and be honest with him and tell my family and tell my therapist and my doctor to put me back on that accountability road of I need to take care of myself and I need to not do this, that the goals that I have and want and what I'm working towards and the community that I get to be part of, like I need to also be putting myself first. Um, so yeah, it's been a struggle. It's something that I wonder, am I ever gonna get over this? Is this ever not gonna control my life? Even in my strongest of days, it's still there in the back of my head. It's still a temptation. Um, and it's still a struggle every day. So 
forgive me if I'm being ignorant in these questions. I just don't have a whole lot of experience and knowledge when it comes to eating disorders. If you if you're comfortable with it and if you don't mind, what exactly is the the disorder that you're you're working with? Yeah, so mine is it started off as anorexia and bulimia, both. Um, and then now it's turned more into purging. So like I said, it, it's, it coincides with really high intense moments when things get overwhelming and stressful. Um, that seems to be my source of relief and release. Um, and it feels like it's that same kind of feeling that I get when I like drink a Coke after a 15 mile long run. Um, it's that sense of like, oh, my shoulders can drop and like, I feel like I have some sense of clarity, but at the same time, I know this is wrong. I know this is unhealthy. I know this is dangerous. Um, and so that's what I've noticed that it's kind of transformed over the last few years, uh, because I can't, I don't handle anxiety well. And that's something that I'm learning also in therapy. And actually just two days ago, I had my first session of trauma therapy and it's something that I'm still feeling very vulnerable and very exposed like I have this huge big house that I felt protected in and have had been able to open the windows, but there are screens there which allow me to feel safe. But I feel like after that session of what we went through, um, I feel like those screens are not there and I feel very open right now. Um, so yeah, these are just all part of the understanding of why I have this anxiety, why I have how these traumas that we've found from when I was little, from like two years old, witnessing my mom um, being abused and feeling helpless as a two-year-old and not being able to know how to call 911 at that time and feeling like I let her down to other times in my life where I'm like overcompensating with, I need to be able to control everything because I want to be able to show up I want to be able to feel as prepared as I can. So that incident with my mom where she called was calling to me to say dial 911 and I didn't know how. I knew what 911 was, but I didn't know how to work a phone, feeling like I can't let the next person down. Um, and so that's what our therapy session was as we were also talking about like my eating disorder and like what fuels these relapses and how we can be more conscious about it to not only protect my body, but also my mind and emotional state. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a long road. <laughs> uh, we just decided we're going to do like a six week trauma therapy plan every week. Um, so I'm a little hesitant about it, but I'm also ready because I don't want any of this to be controlling my life anymore. And I also want to, you know, feel like safe, and feel, you know, I guess, I don't know, just like more, more happy because I'm also carrying all of this with me and I, I feel bad for carrying it, although I don't need to feel bad, if that makes sense. Definitely, it makes sense to me. And as you talk about it, it's almost walking right alongside alcoholism or drug addiction is these eating disorders could also be a way of coping with these traumatic situations. Yeah. I myself was an alcoholic and I've been sober for coming up on seven years. And it was almost the exact same thing where I was trying to cover up a lot of these traumatic situations that had happened in my past. After my 
very abusive, very violently abusive and physically abusive relationship, I used alcohol to kind of numb all of that out. And then after I was sexually assaulted, I started to use even more alcohol to try to numb all of those feelings out. And even after I'd gotten sober, I have a very impulsive personality. So if I do something and I feel those same endorphins release, like I would if I were taking a shot, then I have a tendency to fall right back into that. So when I had gotten sober seven years ago, what I had replaced it with was going to the gym and training. So my shot of Everclear turned into a 45 minute cardio session, 5 a.m. Hit that really quick, do it again at noon, then feel a little bit better, but then start feeling the anxiety and my depression starting to overwhelm me. So get to the gym by 5 p.m. and stay there until 10 p.m. when everybody else is leaving to go home. And so it was masking a lot of what I was really trying to deal with on the inside. So I can definitely see a little bit of similarities in those. And that brings just a little bit more light to my eyes as to the ignorant comments that can be made from some people. of Why don't you just eat? Why Mm -hmm. don't you just keep track of what you're eating. And I think those are the same as, well, just don't drink. Well, you don't understand why I used to drink. Well, just don't go to the gym. Well, you don't know why I'm going to the gym in the first place. There's this level of understanding that we have to reach to be able to understand like even our triggers. So that's, I mean, I will definitely be thinking of you, especially as you go through um, these new therapy sessions that you're going, going into. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of hard, heavy work, but I definitely want you to know that you're going to be on my mind. I'll be praying for you. That's a lot of, a lot of work. And I think it will be really good. And I definitely understand the um, almost feeling guilty for having this while still trying to do a lot of your advocacy work that you're doing, but you are seen for everything that you have going on and all of your feelings are 110% valid. I always encourage everybody to feel it, but yeah, let's do something with it. And, um, but that leads me into, you're welcome. That leads me into you are just busy, busy. And I see all the things that you're doing. And one of our connections that we were able to make through Acacia Red Elk was uh, your organization with Rising Hearts. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, Rising Hearts has been around for almost five years. It began out of the No Dapple Standing Rock movement. And someone just asked me, hey, like you're a runner. How about you do something to welcome the Standing Rock youth who are running over 2,000 miles to D.C., welcome them in some way. And I was like, oh, I've never organized anything. I've only ever shown up to rallies and helped volunteer. But I was like, I've never requested permits or police escort to make sure everyone's safe. Like, I guess how hard is it or how stressful can it really be? Oh, my gosh, it was stressful. Um, I vowed to never do it at the end of that day. Once I saw all the youth and they had their like food and snacks, everyone was good. They got to meet with White House officials, like organized all these things for them. But at the end of the day, I was just like, never doing that again. Um, but yeah, that's how it came to be was to organize. And I was like, I'll just organize a prayer run for them. Like we ran from the Supreme Court to Army Corps of Engineers headquarters and protested there for several hours trying to have conversations with all of the officials who are part of the permitting process to let this pipeline happen. Um, But it was really the youth. I got to meet them. I got to talk to them. I got to meet a cousin of mine that I've never met before from my tribe. Um, And so that was really, I was like, man, this is such a small world. Uh, But hearing what they were saying and how 
just the compassion and the importance and the, the sense of urgency that was in their voice speaking to Mini Wichoni, water is life, water is sacred, water is our first medicine. We are born into water in the womb. Um, seeing them from all ages, literally in diapers, walking, running, into the strollers, to our youth, to our elders, seeing them use their voice in such a powerful way to speak to what is right and to honoring indigenous peoples and our next generations, the safety and the future of our next generations, inspired me to be like, Jordan, you need to do so much better because before then I was just like, I'm going to move to DC. I'm going to lobby. I'm going to work on the Hill. I got to do all of that stuff, but I saw everything policy-wise, Congress-wise was so slow moving and so um, problematic and harmful to indigenous peoples in terms of representation in those spaces, which led me away and going back into community-driven work to support our communities. Um, and so it just had me question, it's like, Jordan, what else are you doing? Like, how else can you be a better relative? And like, how else can you show up? And I'm really shy. Like, you probably wouldn't think so. A lot of people don't think so, but I really am. I'm such an introvert and it's taken these years, almost five years of practice of constantly talking on a stage, constantly talking at a rally or a march and using a, a bullhorn and podcasts and interviews to like really get some sort of confidence to feel a little bit less nervous. Um, but I still feel like I want to throw up um, prior to all of these things. Um, but it, it led me to seeing that I need to show up in a much bigger way for them. Like this is all about them and our future. And that inspired me to start Rising Hearts to really increase indigenous visibility and representation in those organizing spaces, especially in DC. They were organizing in solidarity for Standing Rock, but I wasn't seeing indigenous voices on those stages behind those microphones. I wasn't seeing the land acknowledgements happen, happening. So I started inserting myself into their groups and said, hi, I'm Jordan. Like, why did, was in the land acknowledgement done? Why didn't you have uh, the Biscataway natives do the opening prayer? Why didn't you have indigenous voices speaking to this issue? Um, and so then that led to a lot of co-collaboration, intersectional work. We started co-founding other coalitions together to get DC to divest from Wells Fargo um, and a bunch of other initiatives. But Rising Hearts really served as a platform to push people, to push the boundaries and get them to ask themselves, like, why? how else can they be doing better? How else can they be showing up and supporting indigenous folks? So not just indigenous now, Rising Hearts is very much committed to the intersectional work of supporting our other communities, our other POC communities and LGBTQ2 spirit non-binary relatives, um, especially now Asian relatives and the hate crimes and the violence that they're experiencing are Muslim relatives. So Rising Hearts now really encapsulates a teaching that my, my family has raised me on of we are all related. When growing up, my goal was to always fight and strive for our people. Eighth grade dream was, I wanna to move to DC when I'm older and work on policy, that happened, but it's always been about my relatives. But as I've grown up and have seen some of the injustices happening amongst our communities, it's now really about this teaching that I was taught to me, that it can be for your people, but it's also about all people. And that's the work that I really love doing within Rising Hearts is really building community to really center indigenous voices as well as other BIPOC voices, POC,
but also creating an environment that everyone else can be part of, that they can learn from, that they can support, learn how to show up. Um, and so that's what all the programming is about. We still do community organizing, um, not now during a pandemic, but we still focus on a lot of the climate justice efforts. Um, change the name, not your mascots. Uh, but now we're really focusing on wellness, on land acknowledgements through the Running on Native Lands initiative. We are starting a Running with Purpose community club team where we're going to be accepting all runners, walkers to be part of this club of intersecting sport with advocacy and being able to be in a space of other athletes who are already doing that with also other people who may want to start doing that, of asking the right questions of like, how do I get started? How do I start advocating for something that I really am passionate about and how can I bring it into this space? Um, and just hopefully impacting and influencing change through a ripple effect that can lead towards that next generation, that better future for our next generations. Absolutely. And the work that you've done has definitely been that ripple effect that you're talking about. And when Katsi had kind of thrown the idea at me, apply with this group so you can be on, on their calendar, you can teach a class, you can teach turn up, or you can do your safety training or uh, go ahead and fill it out. Like get, get in contact with her here, here's the info. And I'm kind of like, it's probably just another place to be able to teach virtually and kind of get into this. And so I was a little hesitant, but then I was also like, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. What, what, what do I really got going on? So I went ahead and applied. And then we had our, our first session with that safety training. And right from the get, when we're starting, you asked the question, um, what does decolonizing health mean to you, health and well-being? And I thought that was such like a powerful question right out the gate. Cause it, and I did my best that I could answer, but in a way I was like trying to convince myself of what are you doing with all of this in order to advocate for your people, in order to get back to your traditional ways, in order to get back to how things used to be when things mm -hmm. were, were good for us. And so it caused me to do a lot of reflection on myself and what work I've been trying to do. And it showed, wow, opportunities like this. I am a firm believer and everything serves a purpose and things don't just happen just to happen they're there for a reason and I think really think Katsi kind of pushed me to do that and then getting in contact with you and then really seeing just the type of woman you are on like your your social media and then teaching these classes has definitely on a personal level for me has inspired me and motivated me to start digging deeper into like the bigger why which was I had the same idea of like I really like fighting and I really think I could represent my people going in there and punching people in the face. This, this is a lot of fun. I get to travel. I get to see people and create connections, but it's shifted in the past year to, okay, you've done these things and now you've proven you can do them, but what are we leaving behind for the next generation? Or what are you showing people now from your ancestors, mm -hmm. what they were capable of, what they were doing? Like, how are you representing your people as a whole and not just using this as, as a personal like vacation to go to this place to be able to go and fight someone. Yeah. So I can I can personally say on for me it's been it's been pivotal and it's changed a lot of things for me and it's helped me find this new energy and what I'm tr trying to provide for my own local community but also for Indian country. I yeah. started thinking bigger picture 
I'm like really thinking like Jordan's doing all these amazing things. I want to do it too. Like I can, <laughs> I can put in all this work. I can do, I can do the things, but it really is just amazing work that you do. And I know it's not just through rising hearts. And for those that don't know, rising hearts has been this um, platform in, in a nutshell, anybody that doesn't know is this platform where you've been able to bring all these different instructors a place to teach virtually and to reach different audiences um, mm -hmm. that they might not have had the opportunity to reach out to before. Um, so if anyone is interested in that, definitely they can find that on your, your Instagram page and even mine and Katya Red Elks. But that isn't the only organize, organization that you do a lot of work with. Um, what are the other ones? Yeah, so oh, some of the many hats that I wear are I'm a filmmaker and I'm co-directing and producing a passion film of mine called Running with Purpose to tell the stories of other runners who intersect running with advocacy. And so we're actually going into production in three weeks and filming our first episode of an indigenous woman who's running a 50 mile prayer run on March 20th to honor indigenous knowledge keepers and scientists because she just graduated and got her PhD you know, indigenous people represent, I think, 0.02% in higher education and in PhD doctoral um, pa uh, educational pathways. Um, and so she really wants to bring awareness to access for our next generations um, and seeing more indigenous professors, teachers, researchers, scientists. And she also does a lot of work on like land restoration and talking about the mining down in Arizona and New Mexico. Um, and talking about just representation in those spaces and that indigenous communities need to have a seat at the table when those conversations are happening um, and how they could potentially be endangering our communities like a lot of those minds have. So she is absolutely incredible. We're really excited to tell her story. Um, and so stay tuned for July when her episode will be released um, as well as her call to action, which is to create a scholarship fund for indigenous um, youth to apply for so that they can continue their higher education should they want to choose that path. Um, so that's the other side of it. I also work as a project manager um, with the UCLA School of Medicine. And so the last year, that's my day job. That's the one that helps pay the bills. Um, that one is I'm supporting faculty and scientists in preparing their applications for funding for their incredible projects. And just one to highlight one of the PIs that are doctors that I got to help support is he's the one that also also found a cure for Ebola. And that was like a huge announcement, I think, around this time last year. Um, and so this is the kind of like leading translational clinical science that's happening at UCLA that I get to be part of, where I get to see the data and see all of the work that goes into making some of these cures possible. So I get to help them administratively packaging up, like reviewing all of their documents. But in the last year, we've pivoted everything to being COVID studies related. Um, and it's been a very interesting perspective and lens that I've had. I feel like during this pandemic, I see all the data and I'm like, I wish so many people could see this because then they would see how important it is to wear a mask and how important it is to socially distant from ourselves, from each other, so that way we can keep protecting each other, so that way we're not having to bury a loved one, so that we're not losing our elders, our knowledge keepers, and, you know, our language warriors. And so it's been really hard in that role at the same time, and we've been working to support them in all of the, the clinical vaccine trials, and just, yeah, it's been an incredible perspective 
but it's also at the same time been very disheartening because you see all of the misinformation happening. You see all of this um, really kind of dangerous rhetoric being thrown out there that is leading to us losing our community members. Um, so that's the other thing that keeps me very busy is that job. Um, and then I also do a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting um, within now UCLA um, and within Rising Heart Spaces, community organizing spaces, and now in the running and outdoor communities as well. Many, many hats and super duper <laughs> busy. And we all definitely <laughs> appreciate all the work that you do. Um, it does not go unseen, that is for sure. So I was doing a little bit of Googling and I've, I saw some really cool things. Um, Sports Illustrated? <laughs> yeah. You did an article with them? Yeah. I don't, that was really cool. How was that? Um, that was, that happened, I think, like a couple of weeks after my Boston Marathon prayer run. And it was really cool. It was really awesome to be in that platform. But I was also so nervous and still was dealing with trying to figure out what just happened like with how that run was supposed to be just me and them and then it went viral and global um so i was like still adjusting to okay well how am i gonna can, how how can i do this now in a good way in a good respectful way not just to the advocates in this work but to the families and what does this mean so it was it was really cool to talk to them um, and to have them, you know, elevate that prayer run and their names being printed and part of it. But it was also a very confusing time for me because it's just like I, I didn't expect this reaction. I didn't expect attention from it. Um, so I was still like in that place of trying to figure it all out. And you grew up on the reservation, right? No, I, I grew up there for the first nine years of my life, but I grew up in Maine in a very um, rural very white town um, where I experienced racism for the first time and a hate crime and was in a place that they didn't know they had five federally recognized tribes and just felt very different growing up for a while. Yeah. And I mean, that side of the States is like where all the first co like colonies were all yeah. built and everything. So I can only imagine what it'd be like for Native Americans in that area. But so at least during like, a really young age until you're about nine you're on the reservation I'm just thinking in the perspective of as like a kid when we're on the res and we're like just it's just so for me it's different because I hated running I, I I just don't enjoy it as much as I probably should but as kids it's what we do we're just running around we're playing and I'm from that generation where we were outside till clear till like mom had to force us to come into the house so yep. running down the street just thinking and I'm huge on sometimes you got to look back in order to move forward so what is that like for uh, a person that was born and growing up just for a, a little bit on the reservation and then doing things like sports illustrate we have so many kids especially on my res that are huge on basketball and they really want to make make it somewhere with this what is what does that look like in hindsight for you I mean, it's it's what I wanted to see at that age, you know, little snotty nose Jordan, you know, my nicknames were Air Jordan Booger Nose, like just being <laughs> the little snotty little, little Jordan, um, chasing my cousins, being chased, 
bike crashes, playing in the Missouri River, powwows, everything, you name it. Um, it. It meant a lot when those opportunities were starting to happen because this is what I wanted to see growing up. And my grandfather, he's the one that took me on my first run when I was 10 years old. And he, I'm a fourth generation runner, so it's very part of our family. And running was about being able to continue this really cool family club that I felt like I got to be part of, continuing this tradition and legacy. But as I got into high school and started competing more and started having that become my identity, really, um, it became about representation, being Lakota, being an indigenous woman in the running space to represent native people. And in college, it was the same thing. And now it's just really focusing on dismantling barriers and creating a new path for our next generations to just come right on, to not have those barriers, to um, have every right to have access to all of that. And so I really hope, you know, those stories and um, even more recently in November and December and October, you know, I got to have the Runner's World cover. I got to have the Trail Runners magazine cover. and for me, when I saw those images, I couldn't believe it because that's literally what I kept thinking about is I wanted to see my grandfather on those. I wanted to see Alvina Begay, who, um, you know, ran in the Olympic trials and um, just a, an amazing Navajo runner. And she's just absolutely amazing. And now a new mom. I wanted to see her on that cover. I wanted to see more people that looked like me on the, in that platform. Um, and the fact that I had the chance to do that just meant so much to me. And the fact that it wasn't about me, this is a win and a representation for all of us, not just me. And I hope that that starts the beginning to set a new precedent that this is going to become very normal. We're going to start seeing more of us on, on these covers, in these articles, in the films, um, you know, every platform possible. And so that's, that's what it means to me is being able to have our youth see us, not just me, even you, even Ocasia, everyone who is part of the Indigenous Wellness Through Movement program to see themselves um, and to be inspired and know that they have every right to be right there too when they grow up. Absolutely. I like I agree because when I had started my fighting journey and I started after my oldest son was born, I started thinking the type of example I wanted to be for him. And in the beginning, it was just being able to take a stand as a woman that could defend herself. And then also a woman that was no longer going to let alcohol control her life. And then it slowly started to blossom into a different, different meaning behind the entire journey. Because as he got older, he started seeing me get up at 5 a.m. and going for that dreaded jog that I really didn't enjoy or like <laughs> or uh, staying late at the gym to work on maybe some more sparring sessions and coming home with like maybe a, a busted lip or a tissue in my nose because I had sparred so hard that night and him being like, wow, like this is what it takes to be able to do these things. We want to be able to provide a role model to our children. And that was the overall goal when I had first started was to have it in the home because our yeah. kids are looking up to these people that are on like ESPN that are really huge and out there like Michael Jordan or LeBron and just these people that are way outside of the norm where there's been times where I've been kind of iffy about some UFC fighters that conduct themselves outside of fighting and how they conduct themselves on a personal level. So being a part of movements like this is amazing because then I get to show my kids 
other people that look just like us that are doing a lot of the good work. And when Abraham sees Acacia somewhere, then he's like, oh yeah, I know her. Like I know her, she works with my mom or it provides that connection of like native people are capable of doing this as well. Mm -hmm. And some of our listeners, which is really interesting to me because I've actually been able to stumble like across a group of people that had, there were some that had never met a native American before. They were kind of like, whoa, like you are? Yeah. And it's interesting. So trying to provide perspective for those kind of listeners as well. What do you think is probably one of the bigger barriers that our native children are facing today? I think I would say it comes down to access and to visibility of who we are. We, I feel like as indigenous peoples, our programs, our organizations, the work that we do, we do such a good job of trying to create these platforms for our community, but it's those platforms that are more dominant and more selective of who they want to feature, who they want to interview, um, that I feel like overshadows all the work that we do sometimes. And that's why it's so important to me to work in diversity, equity, and inclusion to really push the boundaries, to really call attention to, you know, we need more POC filmmakers. We need, you know, indigenous writers, part of these scripts, part of these films to actually, you know, have them not be harmful and appropriated and insensitive um, and just having us be part of those spaces. And so I, I hope all of the work that's happening now to rebuild or to dismantle and rebuild a better future is that we start creating a future that is definitely more normalized in the fact that, oh yeah, that's another native person. That's awesome. And we just start seeing more of ourselves in those con congressional seats, in those organizations, in those stores, on those magazines, in those pictures inside of a store. Um, and that it just becomes like the, the norm, which I feel like it should always have been. Um, but I think a lot of what's harmful, especially for our youth today, is the fact that our curriculum is so whitewashed and very inaccurate and depicts a very negative um, and, you know, a big lie, it fabricates it. And so our youth are having to read that unless they are very like with their family and very connected and just close to their family, like they're only going to be exposed to this very inaccurate history of Native peoples from these textbooks. And then having to hear the comments from the students or having to be constantly invalidated by the teachers and by the whole system, um, you know, which has led to a lot of low self-esteem, has, has led to, you know, sadly, high rates of suicide. And so I really hope that we can start tackling the whole curriculum and getting indigenous authors as part of the curriculum and getting more indigenous teachers to be in those spaces as guest speakers or teachers to start talking about this. And so not just for their benefit, but for actually everyone else's benefit to understand that indigenous people are still here. We have always been here. We are the first peoples um, and that we need to start coming to terms with the true history of the foundation of this country. And I think that will go a long way. Exactly. And all too often, either non-tribal or non-Indigenous people are thinking, well, this happened hundreds of years ago. Why are you still holding on us? 
and it's well it might not be right in front of your eyes because you don't have to see this every single day but as a native american as an indigenous person this is still happening and very present for me today and mm -hmm. i think covid when this first hit it hit a lot of native communities really really hard i know locally for us our children were starting to be treated differently in our school because one of the first positive that tests that came from our community was on the reservation but an almost little known fact was the person that had tested positive on the reservation was non-tribal but because reservation was in there then there was this weird just stigma when the kids went back to school yeah. and my boys they have really long hair and that's a lot of work done by my dad he's very traditional and he wanted his grandsons to have long hair to show their resiliency and their strength and start bringing that back as a norm my dad has long hair and it's really strange because the past few years we've always faced a little bit of that lateral violence where even native kids were making fun of them and my mm -hmm. oldest son has always had this really good response of natives are supposed to have long hair and he kind of just walks away from it but when covid hit for people that don't understand for the native communities is our historical trauma when it comes to sicknesses and illnesses yep. is really huge. So when we start hearing about this, there's almost this weird um, division because some people really want to advocate for wearing masks, socially distancing. And then some of us are kind of like, well, we've been facing this type of stuff for hundreds of years and look at how we handled it before. So there's kind of like these two, two spectrums of that. But um, for non-Indigenous people, I really feel it important for them to understand that yes, a lot of the trauma that we face as a people happened hundreds of years ago, but it's in different ways today as mm -hmm. well. And it's a lot on our kids and it's gonna be our conversations that we have with our own kids that's gonna make a difference and cause this, this impact and this shift of healing and understanding for both sides. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that to be really, really important, but- And with all the civil unrest that's happened, it has led to so many triggering emotions because this is, mm -hmm. Some of the stuff our parents went through, our grandparents went through, our ancestors have gone through. We're just seeing it in a more present day. Um, and so I think that's also has what added to, um, you know, this impact that we're feeling, not only just with the virus and the historical context of what our ancestors had to go through um, when colonizers first came to these lands and brought forth diseases that we have never been exposed to, um, but understanding in a much more holistic context of, when we lose an elder, we are literally losing generations of knowledge. Like that is really heartbreaking in and of itself, not just to lose an elder and a loved one, but that knowledge that comes with them is also another aspect of grieving too, as well, especially as communities, we are desperately trying to revitalize our language. We're trying to document, we're trying to make sure that we can continue these teachings into the next generation. So our kids and our grandkids have them um, and so I feel like our fight is that it is just that much harder is like we're racing against time too, to like make sure that we have these resources, these documents for our next generations. Right. And that's huge. And I had actually never thought of it that way, that when an elder in a tribe passes, they're taking hundreds of people's stories and interactions and connections. The yeah. languages like we had speakers that spoke most multiple languages here with our tribe. And I didn't even think of it that way is that they were the last known fluent speaker, master speakers of our yep. language here. So you're right. They're taking so they're not taking it, but they're like a lot of knowledge, a lot of valuable information is 
going with them as well. And that yeah. is even the advocacy work that can be done within our own people is saying, hey, like if they're offering the classes, especially now it's virtual, take it. Like yeah. take all that you can right now. Um, and just education. My dad said it since I was a kid, knowledge is power. And that's ultimately what's going to really save our people from ultimate extinction is just continuing to learn. And yeah. I don't know if for, if it's for, for you as well, but a cultural barrier of ours is a lot of our traditional teachings we're not supposed to record. So a lot of the songs start getting lost because people aren't actually attending the longhouse and our wash it services. And because people just want to record them so they can have them with them at home. But it's it's the essence of being able to be there with the person and experience yeah. the, the feelings and the prayer behind it is what you're supposed to be holding value to not just the words that are being sung but to understand what should be behind yeah. those songs so it's exactly yeah but we we covered quite a bit today jordan and i feel it was a lot of information that is super duper important and needs to be talked about obviously continued conversations will be had but I like to throw some really random quick questions at people just to kind of lighten the mood just a tiny, tiny bit. So uh, Netflix and chill. What's your recommendation right now for Netflix? Oh, gosh. Right now it's been Stranger Things. My partner and I just binged all three seasons in the last like five days. Unapologetically oh, wow. ashamed of that, <laughs> but uh, we've found ourselves like up until 2 a.m. in the morning the last few nights, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to get up at 7:30 and work, but I can't not like watch this, and so it's like I'll just sacrifice my sleep a little bit to get through it. Guilty, I do the same thing as well, and <laughs> when my husband travels, I can't start any new series. I'm like, I have to wait for you to come back because if I start this, I ain't gonna stop until I finish it and he's like you better not start it wait for me to come home um any sort of uh podcast recommendations two of them do you have two podcast recommendations yes so one um the grounded podcast with my friend Danae Dormy she hosts that and she just launched it um back in early January and I think she's on her sixth episode now and is just really giving a whole new perspective of um you know, an indigenous led podcast, which I really appreciate. And this is my third time being on a podcast with um, an indigenous host, which is so exciting. And I hope to see more of it. Um, and then I also, I mean, I don't know if this is good or bad, but um, I also like listening to Crime Junkie. Uh, that's just something about me yes. that I am, I watch crime shows and investigative journalism, and I really, like a lot of those episodes and hopefully um she responds to my email to some of my suggestions of featuring mmr cases on there to bring more awareness that way um but it's another podcast that i really like and then finding um finding chloe um connie walker uh, an indigenous first nations woman who hosted that podcast is two seasons absolutely incredible um investigative journalism is really really amazing but it really shows the long intergenerational trauma caused by boarding schools which was really a connecting factor between these two seasons even though they're about two different um missing relatives at the same time it was just really gives you a good perspective of the harm 
of some of these policies have had in our communities. And Jordan meant to mention the EIE podcast in there as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I would <laughs> hope that everyone listening here is already constantly <laughs> listening to EIE. So I think this will, this will be a really good one because of what you do. How many pairs of shoes do you own? Oh, uh, like all together, just running shoes. <laughs> both. Let's go through both the running shoes and then all of your shoes. Um, I think I have like 15 pairs of running shoes right now with three more on the way. Holy cow. Yeah. I are, have... they like, are they like specific? Do you have like, okay, these are like my long distance running shoes and then these are my sprints. Is that how that goes? Yeah. Like my road workout shoes, my long distance shoes, my trail running shoes, which I have like three different kinds for different kinds of trail running. Um, yeah, I have a lot of options to go through, but it's also really important. Any runner listening to this, please alternate your shoes it's incredibly important because one it protects your feet that you're not putting all of the miles on one shoe that you have multiple shoes to run in every other day um, and it'll lead to hopefully no injuries for you um, but yeah i highly recommend having at least two running pairs of shoes that you have that you can alternate and then other shoes um yeah i don't know like 10 including sandals and normal slip-on type shoes. I have more running shoes than anything. Hopefully we don't have no weirdos listening to this, like, ooh, how many <laughs> pairs of shoes does she have? <laughs> Very weird story. I'll, I'll get into it another time, but I did get one message before. A guy wanted to see pictures of my shoes. And at the time of this question, I had posted something on my Facebook and it had my shoes in it and they were just all white chucks. That's all they were. Nothing fancy. So I thought legitimately he wanted a picture of my shoes. Like, hey, I want to see what brand those are. So I sent the picture. Well, I didn't know I had gotten myself into this huge mess of every day. It was going to be like, so what kind of shoes are you wearing today? Oh, my oh, wait, gosh. You're native. Do you wear moccasins too? Can I get a picture? I'm like, okay, now I know what oh my this gosh. is. Dang it. Oh, my gosh. So, all right. Last one. Would you consider yourself a clean or messy person? Clean. Clean very that whole personality I have of being able to control things also makes me very type a very organized very compartmentalized in my life <laughs> oh yeah that makes sense before my husband and I had met I was very very OCD about my living quarters like my my kitchen was absolutely spotless all the time probably the messiest part of my entire apartment was my boys' room because I allowed them to just play however they wanted I didn't make them put everything on the shelf but everything had a place everything had where it belonged and I almost looked like some crazy person that was constantly scrubbing on stuff which I wasn't <laughs> but I, I traveled a lot and then after my husband and I started dating. He kind of got me to chill out about that. He's like, <laughs> we use the kitchen, right? We cook. Do we cook here? And so we, kinda, <laughs> we balance each other out pretty well on that. And so um, my biggest thing, though, is always the kitchen is my area. Like, yep, yep. Come in here, wash it. Like, I have to be able, if you want to eat, I got to be able to cook. I have to have a clean space. Like, don't mess with that. So, yep. But I also do the whole like washing the dishes while you're cooking so that you have no mess after. So you just do everything as you go. <laughs> mm hmm. <laughs> yep. Every longhouse auntie is like, that's what you should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> so but 
All right. This was a really awesome conversation to have with you, Jordan. I want to thank you again so, so much for your time and all of the work that you do. You are absolutely seen and you are amazing. Is there anything you would like for our listeners to know? Any last thoughts? Um, one thing I always like to end every podcast with is, you know, I really am appreciative and grateful to be able to share my story and the work that I get to do. But, you know, one of the biggest proudest moments of my life was being able to inspire Rosalie Fish, who is a younger youth and was inspired by my prayer run. And I just want everyone to know that you have every opportunity and chance to inspire one person or hundreds. And that one person can make a difference in this community like she did in elevating this issue and what we fight for for missing and murdered indigenous relatives. And, you know, you can have such a powerful impact and difference in, in your own community. And so I hope that listening to our conversation today, um, or if you want to Google Rosalie and other podcasts that she's been on or interviews, it just shows that we can create that ripple effect of change that you can be part of it. Um, so thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome to chat with you and getting to know you more. And I'm looking forward to the future ahead where we get to collaborate more. Yes, I'm absolutely excited. And anything that Jordan listed off today, we'll make sure to include those links in the show notes. So you all have access to those. And this was awesome. And thank you again so, so much. Mila Palamayaye. Thank you. E. Thank you for listening to the Enough is Enough podcast. If you would like more information on our host, guests, or podcast episodes, please visit us on Instagram at EIE541. 